again for listening to the Business of Fun podcast. This episode is brought to you by Booking Protect, the global leader in refund protection. To find out more, visit www.bookingprotect.com, where you can see how offering your guests refund protection will give them peace of mind. It will improve the customer buying journey, and for your organization, it can provide a new stream of revenue. Now, today's episode is sort of a special edition. My guest is sort of me and my friend Brett Zelaski. And what Brett and I have decided to do is we've decided to take a little bit of time from time to time and get together and have some conversations around some of the big issues and topics that are going on in sports and entertainment business. Partly because a lot of you have been asking me to learn more about how I approach things and my philosophy on sales and marketing and revenue generation. The other part is because Brett has a sales podcast that's really good, and he talks to a lot of people in sales and uh, inside and outside of sports. But he has a lot of ideas about marketing, and he his philosophy tracks closely with mine about how marketing really should be driving the sales effort and not reacting to what the sales challenges are. So what we want to do is get together and talk about the challenges of empty seats, specifically in most cases in sports, but in a lot of cases it's going to directly reflect on the empty seat challenge in concerts, live events, and probably the issue of demand generation across any industry. So this thing might not work and it might be completely um, something that is great. We've wanted to give it a try. Um, we'll look for your feedback and once we're done and you've had a chance to listen to it. Until then, here's me and Brett having a conversation about empty seats in sports. I hope you enjoy it. Hey everybody, welcome to the Business of Fun. This is going to be a slightly different episode um, that's built out of a couple of ideas, right? One of the ideas, there has been a bit of a a request that's gone around over and over again about having people talk with me and understanding a little bit more of the philosophy I bring to my approach in marketing and selling, especially experiences and events. So that, that's number one. Number two is I have my friend on the line, Brett Zelaski, who um, spends a lot of time working on sales. Um, but, he, but a lot of the sales stuff is driven by marketing, and he didn't necessarily have a platform through his own Get After It Sales podcast to talk about some of the marketing challenges and the marketing issues. So combined, we decided it might be interesting to do a, an occasional series of podcasts where we talk about some of the issues and challenges that are facing uh marketing and selling experiences in sports and entertainment. That way it was sort of uh, give you an opportunity to hear a little bit more from me as far as my philosophy and the way I tackle problems and to hear from Brett on things that are marketing and things that maybe not don't necessarily he things that he doesn't necessarily get to talk about on his regular sales podcast. So Brett, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, of course, and and have lots of opinions on it, too. That's well, the other, that's that the goes without saying. Um, I think that's what people come here for, is they come here for the opinions. They stay for the – and they stay for the ideas. Um, so today we wanted to spend a few minutes talking about one of the big challenges um, that is going on in – I know in sports because this is extremely visible. It's probably less visible in the performing arts and some of the other forms of entertainment unless you follow Empty Seats Galore on Twitter – is the empty yes. seat challenge, right? And, and for me, 
you know, it's more than just the seats. It's it's about demand. It's about the business model. It's about a lot of things. And I, I know Brett has some very um, interesting and different ideas about this as well. So this is a, we're going to start by talking about the empty seat challenge. And specifically, we're going to move past what the challenge really means to the business. And we're going to try to focus on some solutions about how you can kind of alter your ideas and your business model um, and the, your approach to marketing and selling your experience to generate some better results for yourself. Um, so hopefully that's going to translate to our conversation and it will be interesting for you. So, Brett, let's introduce the idea. Yep. Go, go right ahead. I'll, I'll let you start. You, t- you tell me, you, you, you jump it off. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you mentioned empty seats galore and uh, that's one of my favorite ones, cause, right? Because I was the director of ticket sales. One of my main goals was to not have my team be on empty seats galore that night whenever we sold tickets. Um, and have that challenge be, well, that laughing joke of, well, they announced 20,000 people. How many actually people are in the building when they say whatever they're saying? And I think one of the biggest challenges that, that we face in sports um, is whether or not those tickets are sold or not. Um, but that battle of really getting people into the building, because you can take a look on any TV station any night that isn't essentially an NFL game. Um, and when you're looking into the stands, you can see rows and rows and rows and sections of empty seats that that are open or available. And, you know, this is a problem that faces even, you know, the best of your major league baseball teams all the way down to um, some of the challenges that you start seeing in, in minor league sports, too. So um, this is a, an epidemic of grand proportions. And, you know, I have the, the ability to talk across sports um, to all these different people. Um, and whenever you talk to a vice president of ticket sales, you talk to a chief marketing officer, you talk to a president, um, butts and seats, um, whether or not it's directly related to sales, whether or not we really need to sell those tickets um, or just getting people in the building. But it, it, it's the number one thing that, that people bring up and that people talk about. Um, so I, I think it, it certainly is a it's an important place to start because, you know, um, I, you talked about this and you talk a lot about marketing stuff and you know, I talk a lot about sales stuff. Um, this isn't a sales issue and this isn't a marketing issue. It's a sales and marketing and operations and um, concession. And I mean, this is this is an epidemic that touches every single area of, of your professional sports organization. And it's, again, not just a, a sales issue, which is I know where a lot of people want to start. Um, but, you know, it, it's an issue that organizationally, I think that teams need to to really focus on. Yeah, to me, it's a big issue of strategy, right? And the strategy just doesn't align with the outcomes. It's, um, I find it over and over again in a lot of organizations, and this is completely um, universal, not just sports and entertainment, is everybody is very, um, becomes very bad at diagnosing their biggest issue. So, but they're very good, they're great at diagnosing the point of pain. So the thing we see in sports a lot, right, is that there's nobody, um, there's a real problem with attendance in a lot of sports in a lot of places. So the natural reaction is I feel the pain in the attendance, which creates pain in merchandise and creates pain in food and beverage and creates pain in all these areas. So what I need to do is figure out ways that I can uh, drive people into the stadium. So let me discount. Let me offer, um, you know, free things. Let me do all of these things. And it 
never seems to touch on the underlying problem, which is the strategy thing, which is like, what's the value of coming to an event, right? What is, who is my customer, right? Who is my real likely buying customer and how do I reach them? Right? Because I think like before we got on this or as we've been battling this idea around a little bit, one of the key challenges you've talked about is the need for outreach to reflect the world we live in, not the world we want it to be in, the world yes. we want to live in. And, you know, and I, and I see that over and over again, and, and not just in sports and entertainment, but I see it a lot of places because it's easy to do the things that we've always done, even if they don't work, just because the pain of change can seem so great. And I know from your, your background, working on the team side for a lot longer than I ever did, um, you probably bring a better perspective to that, to how, you know, how can we create some of the, um, first, how can we nip the idea of, you know, kind of reactive thinking in the bud? And then more importantly, how can we, uh, restructure that to a more proactive form? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, I think one of the biggest challenges with the empty seat thing is we've allowed it to happen to us. So, you know, I, I know I put a, a tweet storm up the other the other week that, you know, talked about it, you know, kind of like a, a drug addiction um, when it comes to our strategy of just getting people in the building. But, you know, essentially what we've done is by being reactive to it um, and putting in places discounting and, and doing things like marketing to the bottom, um, we've essentially eroded a fan base um, in, in one of two ways. We've either now got people trained to look for these discounts or we've got all these people that have committed so much to us, our season ticket holders, our partial plan holders who keep seeing these race to the bottom deals. You know, like, why on earth is there value in being a season ticket holder if every single week I'm going to get kicked in the gut by a new ticket deal that that's coming about. And so, you know, that, that, you know, just like, like a drug addiction, you know, that erosion is real. And then teams wonder why, well, the team's winning. Why isn't, why aren't people coming back? Um, and it's, it's because they don't see the value in the ticket anymore. And the problem with that is once the season ticket holders don't see the value in the ticket, I can tell you this, if you sell an $8 ticket or a $10 ticket or an $11 ticket, or one of those passes that I know a lot of the teams have been using, they don't feel the pain of missing that because there's no there's no pain in spending ten dollars on a ticket. There's no pain in spending eight dollars on a ticket. So while that while you may count that as a sold seat, they don't really feel like they're missing anything if if they don't ultimately attend. So all of a sudden you've got season ticket holders and partial plan holders who've been coming for years and years and years getting pissed off because these deals are available, and you're having all these people who are spending so little money they don't feel the pain in, in the ticket actually being there and you have lots of empty seats regardless of how many seats are sold. Um, and that problem doesn't get better over time. Well, I think well, if, if, we, if we decided that we were going to, people were wanting to hear a little bit more of my philosophy, let me go ahead and go to the greatest hits right here, which is go. if you discount from the moment you discount, you create a perception in the buyer's mind that you are a discount brand that never stops for at least seven years. It's just neuroscience. If you want to see the data, go pick up my colleague Martin Lindstrom's book, Biology. I'll even try to remember to put that in the show notes because he did a consumer 
uh, neuroscience, mar- neuromarketing research study that lasted three years where he studied, or it might have even been longer, but it was at least three years where he studied the actual brainwave things that happen when you take certain actions. So people might tell you they love discounts, but they don't. They, you know, they might tell you that they like something, that, but deep down, embedded inside, they hate it. And I think you have to become more conscious of these things because just because they sound good doesn't mean they are good, right? Discounts like a sugar high, right? It's like having a Reese's cup, man. I'm a, my uh, my energy's flagging. Let me have a piece of candy. I'll feel better. But then the you know the it happens for a second, and then the pain you know the crash comes, and that's where a lot of this stuff is today because there's no underlying strategy that says hey look i need to over the next five years i want to grow my season ticket base from you know and i'll just throw out a number ten thousand to twelve thousand right twenty percent in five years okay maybe that's a little maybe that'd be a little low but you know maybe you say ten percent a year over the next five years or something like this right it's always like reactive and year to year like if i don't have the, the fans this year there's no plan in place because, at least to me, and this, again, being a, philo- a philosophy thing, is if I can get you into the b- building, right, I can monetize you much more effectively than I can if I try to get every squeeze every penny out of you at every step of the way, right? Yes. Which I know this is a philosophy that gets passed down from the league offices a lot of times. It's like, let's maximize the ticket price. Let's maximize the drink price. Let's maximize the food price. Let's go to our spreadsheet and maximize how much we can charge for a jersey and a t-shirt and a hat. and every We can maximize everything. The problem is, is that if you maximize everything, you maximize nothing. Right. It's one of those things as an absolute. Right. If I say that you're absolutely going to do this, then the, the you know, like uh, mass con- mass market products. Right. If I try to market to everybody, I'm actually marketing to nobody. And the idea that you're going to maximize every single thing is, you know, it might play well on a spreadsheet. Right. And in, in your but in rea- real life, it doesn't play very well because. Very quickly, if every point feels like a transaction, then you very quickly feel like nobody cares about it. And it's it's an emotional connection that you have between the consumer and your brand that is missing in so many cases. I mean, I know the NFL is doing great right now, right? Like they're getting more money than (laughs) But I can remember when I was a, a kid, right? how much liveliness and life there was in many of the brands. And now, as far as distinct brand personalities, I count maybe, if I'm being generous, three that have distinct brand personalities. I mean, the Raiders, I would say, still have a a, a distinct brand. Um, Probably the Eagles. And like maybe the Steelers and maybe maybe the Patriots, maybe four, right? The rest of them all could be like, I can cut, you know, I can cut and paste almost, you know, it, it's very, it's very frustrating. And I think it misses the point of the emotional connection between an organization and its fans. But, you know. Well, I think, you know, I think that's, I mean, it's such a good point because, you know, ultimately, you know, when I was in sales, we'd complain a lot about marketing, right? Like that's just kind of what we, that's kind of what we did. But a lot of time you know, organizationally, this starts from the top. So, you know, a lot of times marketing just follows sales. So if your sales start to go down, marketing's message is going to be discount, discount, discount. 
brand building, brand building, when a lot of times, you know, we, we follow each other down that discounting hill. And because to your point, it's like, it's the easiest, it's a little bit of the high, but what we need to be doing the whole time is instead of that, our marketing department needs to determine what our brand is. And then our sales team needs to back that up in everything we do. I think we, you know, I think sales, I think marketing follows sales a lot in professional sports when sales really should be following marketing. And when I think about the teams that I've worked for, that's an amen. That, most, amen. that, that should be amen right there because I don't mean to cut you off, but this is no. something everybody should understand is that marketing is everything you do. You know, there's no yes. like marketing department. Marketing is just everything about what what you do. This is um, a little bit more accepted yeah. in every other industry that's not sports um, and entertainment, but everything you do is marketing. Every touch point, every offer you make, everything you do is marketing. So I'm sorry to cut you off, but that's like, we need to get that out of the way. <laughs> no. And I think, because I mean, it's such a good point. I mean, like we don't think about it enough, but you know, we toss an inside sales rep on the phone um, after two weeks of trading and we have him calling, we're, we're only going to have, we're only going to have you call ticket buyers, right? Like it's only ticket buyers. We can waste ticket buyers on, on these guys with two weeks of trading, but you know, they've been drilled on sales, but they may not really understand what the brand is about. And when you talk to sales leaders at people outside of sports, the thing that they do is all the time is it's, we're going to train on product. 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 So, you know, eventually we'll shape the edges around what the sales technique looks like. But we've got to make sure if that salesperson goes in the marketplace, that they're going to represent our brand appropriately first. And so understanding what our product is and how to communicate our product message first is way more critical than if they have a cohesive agenda statement or if they have an impact sales statement or good questioning or any of that stuff is first and foremost, like, are they positive brand representation? Do they understand what we're talking about as an organization and what we're trying to, to, to make sure that we get across. And, you know, I, I know like, you know, and obviously I know we're watching them move to Austin. So this is a completely other story, but you know, when we led major league soccer two years in attendance at the crew, we made the decision as a as an organization to be Columbus's team. And I know that sounds weird now, but you know, we made the decision to be Columbus's team. And that was reflected from our marketing statements all the way down to our reps. So despite a losing team, we led Major League Soccer in attendance growth with teams opening new stadiums and all that. We led it, and I believe it was because there was a cohesive message all the way from our branding and our marketing, all the way down to our inside sales reps, understood what it meant to be a crew fan first. And then doing some of that training around it. And, you know, I think about the mistakes I've made elsewhere. It's let's make them salespeople first. When your inside sales reps to your sales reps, they need to be brand representatives first, salespeople second. Well, let me ask you something, too, because that brings up an interesting idea, right? Because well, you, you talked about training on the product versus, like, we're just going to have you call ticket buyers. Yeah. I, and it, it seems that in far too many places – and this, you know, again, I think probably one of the values that I bring to um, sports and entertainment when I in the work I do is because I don't work with just sports and entertainment. I work with, you know, organizations kind of all over the place. Is but is that people are focused too much on training to pitch as opposed to training them or hiring for people who can be <coughs> assets 
to, you know, like you said, the brand or just assets to potential clients, right? I um, had been working on something and one of the highlights of the sales training and the sales um, stuff that I'm working on is helping people understand the value of a business acumen and of be creating value in the sales process and through the um, collaborative nature of selling, yeah. right? Because at least the way when people send me uh, pictures or emails or all these things from the different sales reps that reach out to them, it seems like the only tool that a lot of these reps have been given is that they have a pitch. And the pitch is yeah. often not a very good one even. It's, it's, to say it's not very good, I'm probably being nice here. Most of them are terrible, right? It's just like, I mean, I've written uh, short stories when I used to write fiction <laughs> that were shorter than some of these uh, prospecting emails that I received. Yes. You know, and, and I think that that's another missed opportunity is that like if we're training people for a cookie cutter kind of sales job, that doesn't exist anymore. The, the the idea that you can call in and just have somebody come in and train your staff on 10 words not to use or this one script is going to create, you know, magically open the door, I think is missing the point. And, no. and I think it drives yes. the empty seat problem because if you're treating everybody like they're, they're all the same, we see this in the market everywhere is that people want more and more customization, even if it's like a mass product like the iPhone or, uh, you know, any of those things that still, you know, seem mass. And we have to train our sales reps and our and our marketing to not necessarily be cookie cutter or one size fits all, but to reflect the personality of the people that we want. hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that, it's such a great point. I think it evolves from, I mean, it like it starts with this idea that when we're recruiting, you know, if, if you're interviewing someone and they say, Oh, I want to work in marketing, right? Most salespeople are like, Nope, off. Like you're gone. You're done with you. Like the only correct answer to that statement is sales. When I think to the point when we start, like when we recruit people into sales, which Regardless of what's going to happen, that's always going to be the number one place in a company where you're going to have your most amount in sports, where you're going to have your most amount of entry level people. That's just how it is. And we think so myopically about it's got to be sales people. Well, no, like when you think about it as, well, listen, maybe this person is going to come in and work in marketing. Who cares? But it starts with, are they the appropriate brand representatives of our organization? Are they people that are going to leave a positive impression when they react or when they converse with people? And to that second point, like then training them to be an unadulterated fan of whatever that product is. You know, I, one of the best sales reps I ever worked with in soccer was this guy who was a big, gigantic former football player. And we used to call him big country. And when he'd get on the phone with someone, he'd get on the phone, he'd be like, I don't know much about this soccer thing, but I'll tell you why I love these games. There's people dancing and cheering and, and like, and he connected with people because there was such a real interaction there and it wasn't over rehearsed. It wasn't over trained. It was this big football player being like, here is why I genuinely love being at soccer games. And that is worth a million scripts like you can't write a script better than this big football guy 
telling these other people why soccer has such incredible value to him. Um, and when they hear that, man, the reaction to him was, was incredible. And he's still one of these guys to this day. He's running his dad's company's sales department now. So I'm super proud of him. Um, but it was one of those things where, as opposed to being like, how do I turn this kid into a, a sales robot? It's how do I make sure that this gigantic personality gets into the conversation first talking about our product and then let's shape the edges to make sure that they are as effective as possible. And, you know, we kind of reverse engineer it, right? Like let's turn them into sales transactional robots first, and then maybe at some point their personality will get out there. And what we forget in that process is when they're being robots, the people they're hitting are our fans. Like that's who they're hitting when they're, when they're first robotically transactionally selling these people. And that makes, that drives people away from our product. It doesn't bring people to our product. It drives literally people that have spent money on our product. It drives them away from it because of those transactional interactions they're having all the way from the bottom of the funnel now. And, you know, in organizations like this, and this isn't like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, right? Like this isn't like boiler room. Like that's not what we're selling. We're not selling stocks and bonds. Like, you know, we're not, we're not selling real estate, like in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, like outbound on the phones, like, these are real fans, and we forget that if we are creating a transactional environment, just like you hate to be sold whenever you do something, we're driving them away from it by making it overly salesy. Well, that's just not what our product is. We don't have an overly salesy product to sell. We have something that people love, and that love needs to be first. And then the transactional side will come if we approach it that way first. Sorry, that was a huge soapbox rant right there, off soapbox. Well, that's okay. That's what, that's what we're here for, right? But Absolutely. There's a couple things that you brought up, right? Yesterday, and it hasn't gone up, and it'll probably go up in the next week or so. I did a podcast with a guy, a friend of mine who I've known for almost 15 years now, a guy called Peter Shankman, who has written a couple of really great books um, zombie loyalist is the one he wants me to point everybody towards. But the one I like a lot is nice companies finish first, but he was talking a lot about empathy, right? Which is like probably the number one thing he feels like people should be hired for. And I think when you're doing something like what we're talking about in sports and entertainment, empathy is probably something you can't hire enough of, right? Because, um, you, you know, you, you're, you are, you are selling an emotional thing, right? There's, um, I think when I first started publishing on LinkedIn, I wrote about the year I sold $10 million in tickets all by myself, right? And I said that I didn't sell a single ticket in all that year of of selling. I sold a lot of experiences. I sold a lot of opportunities, right? And and I think that goes back to what you were talking about, big country, right? Which is value. And I think one thing we undersell all the time is the value of the live, live experience, right? It's, Hundred percent. I mean, if you listen to a baseball broadcast, my God, they they it's like they it's like they want to commit suicide because they're at a baseball game in the middle of May or the middle of August. The thing about it is, though, is baseball at its best is a novel, right? Which you know, yeah. my favorite ba- my favorite novel is built around following the ball hit around the world across you know across wherever it is because you know they never found it, right? It's called Underworld, yeah. and that's to me like. In all of these sports, if you're not building that narrative and you're not building that value, if if you hate your job or you sound like you're like going, oh, we're going to slog through another July game, well, then why do you expect the fans to care, right? So when you're talking yeah. about sales robots and hitting the fans, right, 
they're not an infinite resource. There is a finite no. number of these people. And the thing is, is to develop them and grow them is not easy. It's not, and it, you know, you don't necessarily always get a second chance. It's, um, I get, you know, I, I give a talk about storytelling and I talk about first impressions, right? And first impression, you know, everybody knows that, you know, a first impression is usually the most meaningful thing. The challenge that we're dealing with today in today's culture is the fact that like we first impressions still mean more than ever before. Yeah. But you don't necessarily know when that first impression is going to come. So when you're talking about, you know, letting your uh, reps loose on just ticket buyers and letting your reps loose to like kind of learn on the job and not be um, to be robots less than value creators. What you're doing yeah. is saying that the first impression doesn't matter. And there's a whole world of evidence that says it does. And that like, if you burn people out, then they're not going to come back. I mean, I, I have been on the receiving end. I was telling, um, for my son's school that we do fundraisers at some of the local, um, with some of the local sports teams. And I was telling them that like one of the teams, if they treat me like Shit. Let's be like, let's be honest, right? Yeah. In the sales process, when I know their VP and their VP told me, told them like, going, oh, take care of Dave because he's setting up a thing for his school. Here's who he is. And if they treat me like shit, right? Yeah. How are they treating regular customers? <laughs> I mean, you know, because I mean, I'm nothing but a regular customer myself, but yeah. still, if you know who I am, right? And you know that I know your VP and you're still treating me with less than with you know less care what are you doing to people who don't have any connection that are just really like coming in cold i mean yeah you know it's awful well that and i mean i think that first impression point is so important too because sometimes you know someone's first impression of us is coming to our game right like if someone's taken to one of our games and so you know when you know to try to like you know pull this a little bit outside of sales and you know make it a little more organizational like that brand reflection has to go through, yes, from that from those phone calls that you're doing outbound, but they've also got to be, you know, when someone runs across you on social media or someone sees some of your advertising in the marketplace to what's their fan experience in the games? How are they being treated when they're walking into our building? Um, how are they being treated when they're served a pizza? How are they being treated when they can't find their seats by, you know, fan services and customer service? And um, you see those teams that do such a good job of it that, when you're when you know we hear teams complain about oh you know the Portland Timbers always have people there so they don't have any problems or Atlanta United you know when you think about those places you know like I having been in soccer for so long I hold what the Timbers have done in incredibly high regard because you know this too like atrophy can happen at any time if you take your foot off the gas pedal and I think one of the things that's so impressive to me about them is they think all the time we know what we have, they're some of the most humble people we work with because they know what we have can be gone tomorrow. So how do we make sure that the way our salespeople treat our fans, the way that our customer service is done, the way that our game operations are done, the environment that we create, how we support our supporters, they think about all those things, not as separate units, but they think about them as, as they interact and as they touch each person. And that's what makes a Timbers game a must-see event in Portland. And a lot of times, you know, we tend to try to isolate that between sales and marketing and the game experience when those things are interconnected in a way that are so critical because any one of those things, you see a bad marketing message or your marketing message is a discount that you're not getting 
from the Brett you're talking to on the phone. He's trying to sell you season tickets and the marketing message is come by $12 seats. Well, now all of a sudden you're pissed off at Brett or Brett's trying to get you to go from being an individual game buyer to season ticket holder, but you come in and your hot dog was cold. It made you sick. It made you throw up. Why are you going to try to you know, make yourself or you get yelled at by someone there or get kicked out by security for not doing anything? Well, why are you going to want to subject yourself to that 17 times, which is the conversation you're having with Brett? So, they're so siloed within an organization, yet literally all of those things are so critical to the success of the other ones. Yes, or if I'm preaching value to you and I tell you all how great it's going to be and how awesome it is and I'm going to charge you $17 for a Budweiser, you you can't insult your customers. I had to to work in the $17 Budweiser or this wouldn't be like my philosophy. (laughs) Well, that's – and I mean to that that point, you know, I I know – like it was trendy for Atlanta United to, to, to be one of those teams that, you know, charged people a reasonable rate for, um, for, for, for food. And yet we wonder why minor league sports, you know, especially like, you know, league, like minor league baseball, when we see attrition at the major league baseball level, yet we see some record numbers at the minor league level. It's because fans can go to minor league baseball games and still feel like they can live a regular life the week afterwards, right? Like, like they don't feel like they're they're having their pocket reached into so deeply that that they're that that they can't you know go out to dinner that week as well. You know, you know I think a lot of you know something like major league baseball has made that a choice, right? Like if you go to a major league baseball game, that may be your event for the month because of the amount of money that you're spending when you go there and. Atlanta has understood, especially Atlanta United has understood, like, let's create that philosophy that people can really feel respected when we walk into the ballpark um, by what by what we're charging them, as opposed to that joke, right? Like whenever you walk into a new stadium, to your point, like, wonder how much the beer is going to be this time. And, you know, I, I think that's like that's all interconnected because they may love the experience, but they may not want to spend a hundred dollars to have a be to have two beers and buy a ticket like that just may not be what that person's into that weekend so to, yeah to your point those things are so interconnected beyond how we think of each person as what is the per cap for each person that comes into the stadium and how do we make sure that we're maximizing the per caps and blah 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 but you talk to an atlanta united you talk to some of those teams that have lowered the prices, what do almost all of them tell you? What's gone up? The per caps. They've gone up because people feel like they can actually buy that second beer or that third beer. And when you're charging, instead of charging $9 for a beer, when you're charging $5 for a beer, if you sell two beers, you're making $1 more. And don't even get me started on what that product costs. It's and I was going to say like, that it's actually worth it. coming from the nightclub, starting out in nightclubs, I understand how much all of these things cost too. So like when you're saying that the only way you can make money is to charge abusive rates, I know you're full of it because I know how much beer costs. And I know how simple it is to – if you get – again, this is a full my philosophy. If I can get you in the door. I can make money off of you because I know how to treat you, right? It's the, the, the foundation of all the workaround revenue that I do came to me when I was probably 21 or 22 years old in nightclubs. Boogie Nights and Trio Nightclubs in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Our per check average was $13. 
Gary Smith was the guy he, who went on to become, I think he, he, he left the nightclubs and became the CMO of the melting pot. Gary, but Gary taught me this, right? And I've been forever grateful. He, he goes, how can we get a quarter more out of the people we already have coming in the door? And the quick, the, the fastest way that we figured it out was like, we didn't change the prices. We didn't do anything. We asked people a simple question. When they would come and order a drink, of, let's say we'll use vodka to soda just because it doesn't matter, right? And that drink would originally be $4. I would say, what kind of vodka do you prefer? And they would say, well, I want Stoli. I want Stoli because it's, it's a matter of perception and story, right? A lot of times if you, the perception is that the value – you receive from going to a, we'll use Major League Baseball game here, is not consistent with what the value you are receiving is. And it's broken because you you think, you know, you being the universal you, can often fall into the trap of feeling that you are your customer. A number, Another really strong point of philosophy for me is that you have to understand that you are not your customer, right? Um I mean, maybe the only case that that applies to is like, if I worked for the four seasons, I'd definitely be my customer. <laughs> but in most cases, you aren't your customer. So what's valuable to you or what you perceive as valuable is not reflective of the market you're serving. And yes. some of these pricing and marketing and strategic decisions, you, you have to rethink them under the idea of like, I know that this, is, this makes sense to me and this is valuable to me. But is the but I'm not my customer. I'm not my customer. What is valuable and meaningful and reflects their perception of value, and then do stuff for this because I get it, right? I, I mean, I have two ongoing questions, right? Number one is like, I know that you want to create a perception of a valuable experience in going to a live event, be it sports or concerts or entertainment, whatever it is, right? But if your only tool is price what's wrong with you? <laughs> then number two is especially, and this is more sports specific than it is anywhere else. It's like, if you're bringing in so much money from media rights that you still have to charge such abusive rates on, you know, food and beverage or tickets to the point where it makes people feel like they can't go to games. What's wrong with your business model? That you aren't making, you know, because I look at the Premier League, right, and, and, the, and the people I work with in England, they're making money hand over fist off their TV rights. And their TV rights are, they're big, but they're, I mean, they're, they're still comparable to, um, you know, what a lot of the other the sports in the States are getting, right? I mean, so if they're making money, why aren't we? You know, are, are, are we that poorly managed or are we that incompetent or, or, or are we that greedy? You know, because yeah. – the thing is about these media rights is the reason the Premier League or La Liga or uh, Syria is able to gain such high rates of revenue from their media rights is because people care. And so if you yeah. can constantly are teaching people not to care about your product, despite what, you know, the numbers still, you know, being strong, but they're all, they're, they're all sort of trending downward is how quickly does that become something you can't recover from? You know, so like the fastest way to to me, and maybe I'm wrong. I can always be wrong, right? To secure the the, the long term stability and future of your organization, especially on a revenue side, is to make sure that people come and engage and 
are part of your organization, part of your sport. They can experience what you're doing and like yeah. wait, you know, not trying to maximize every touch point just because you think you can. Because obviously with all these empty seats, you aren't. You know, I don't care what your spreadsheet says. My lying eyes are telling me that you're not doing that. And it's, you know, it's, it's missed. It's missed opportunities. And, and, yeah. And if you're selling a $9 ticket, one of the things that they're literally go, the fans going through in the mind is I'm buying a $9 ticket. So then do I want to buy a $13 beer? Right? Like that's, that's, that's what's going on in their head. And it's, you know, a lot of times it's, it's not like you're wondering why you sell that ticket and someone doesn't show up. Well, if I'm going to pay more money for a beer than the ticket, then what's the value that I've created around that ticket? Or if I've gone online and purchased it from you know a broker um, and I spent two dollars on the ticket, you know how committed am I to going? If literally everything I do in the stadium is going to cost more money, you know than than what I paid for the ticket. And you know we talked about you know we don't talk to our fans enough, and I, and I think that's one of the things is. You know, to your point, like we go to spreadsheets and we try to figure out how much money that we can make from them without first turning to our fans and being like, hey, you know, what's what's going on? Like, you know, what's happening? What are you feeling? You know, what do you think about the product? What do you think about the brand? And what's this talking to fan thing? What's, what's this? This is confusing to me. And, we, and then we do these surveys, right? We do surveys. And you know who's responding to the surveys? The fans who we already know their opinions anyway. And. One of the things that every team needs to do is, is really make a concerted effort to talk to two people. First, talk to their fans. Have a dialogue, not send a survey. Actually have a dialogue with fans. Bring fans in. Don't just have them fill out a survey. Do workshops. Listen to what they say. Stand there in front of them and have them tell you what their challenges and what their problems are face-to-face in that kind of environment. And second, and we miss this all the time, and I don't think organizations do this enough, talk to those frontline sales reps. Have a dialogue between the front office, the marketing department, the sales organization, and those frontline sales reps, because I can tell you that the challenges that our fans have with interacting with our product, nine times out of 10, they're going to tell a sales rep and they're not going to tell that survey. They'll tell a rep why they're not buying our tickets. And we don't engage with them. And yet those are the people that are talking to our fans the most by far. And so we send a survey. We dice those numbers up, however we, like we were just talking before this, they'll dice those numbers up the, however they want to hear the numbers coming back when the thing that you can't avoid is what they say directly or what your reps are saying directly. You can't make the words that people say diced up to make it fit however you want it to fit mentally what you're going to get back from the numbers on the survey. You can't avoid words. like. If they say you're overpriced, if they say you're not flexible enough, if they say the value of a season ticket has been completely shot, there isn't a number that you can use to get around that direct level of conversation. And to understand what our customers are caring about, we need to talk to our customers and we need to talk to the people our customers are talking to. Like, end of story. Like, too many surveys, too much spreadsheet, not enough time really connecting with, with our fans and the people who are interacting with our fans on a daily basis. Well, I know that anybody who's, I know I don't have to tell you this because I know that you, you will get end up on the receiving end of these things. Like most people, they, they, um, that, that know me, 
you know well enough that like just call me on my cell phone, <laughs> get me. Um, no, that the, the one of the things that I'm, I tell people all the time is like you got to talk to the, the fans a lot more, right? Because the lifeblood, the only job, right? The Peter Drucker rule is that the only thing a, a business does is can create and keep customers. That's your number one job, right? And profit comes from your ability to create and keep customers. Full stop. Right. Yeah. Um, and so talking to people on the front lines is another favorite thing. So if I've already offered you up the, the idea that you should go by biology, right, by Martin Lindstrom, I'll repeat that biology, Martin Lindstrom, neuroscience, it'll, it'll make you fear, scare, hopefully scare you off of discounts forever. The second and third books you should buy are by another uh, another man that I hold in extremely high esteem, a guy called Tom Peters. Uh, the first one's In Search of Excellence, and the other one just came out called The Excellence Dividend. And he talks about MBWA, which is managing by walking around, which yep. when I was in a position to manage people, I spent a lot of time understanding what people were dealing with, right? I spent so much time trying to talk to the people I was working with, um, you know, and understanding what the challenges were, what they were dealing with, because they're always going to be closest to the customer. The further up the ladder you get, the further away from the customer you become. Um, yep. A really great thing on LinkedIn, and I'll see if I can dig it out and share it, was recently a guy called Jesse Cole, who is the owner of the Savannah Bananas, and he'll be on the podcast in the next week or so. Come in, uh, you know, he went and he went undercover and. It was a challenge, right? Everybody knew it was him. But still, he was able to go undercover and like work with, talk to fans and talk to customers and experience the game through innocent eyes, is like how I would yeah. call it, right? And I don't think that there's enough of that that happens. In fact, I know it doesn't. I've seen one executive in all my years sitting in the fans, amongst the fans at a game. And um, yep. I won't tell you who it was. I, I'll tell you offline, but I don't want because I don't want to blow his cover, right? But yeah. I saw him because he was like right. He was had worse seats than I did. Um, but you know, when I took my son to see a playoff game recently, right? So uh, you know, but I I know him, so I, I saw him and I was like, yeah. "What's up?" <laughs> and um, that was you know, but that was that was the only time I've seen that happen. Um, you yeah, know, and this is like going back to the time when I you know. With the Dolphins when I was in Miami or in Seattle when I did stuff with the Seahawks and the Supersonics, I never, you know, I've never seen. I don't see it nearly enough. I've seen it once. I just told you. I saw it once in all my years. And I've been around for a long time now. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we kind of covered this. We kind of covered a lot. I want to leave. And I'll, I'll go first. That way I give you a chance to I'm gonna yeah. spring this question on you. Uh, three ideas that people can maybe uh, – take to turn around the scourge of empty seats that like they can approach things from a different uh, angle. You know, for me, the first thing would be, I want people to go back and start thinking and take the most basic of my three strategy questions, right? Which is what is the value we want to create for our customers? And I think, more important than this is like think about how many different customers you're serving, right? Because it's absolutely certain that if you're a sports team, you have one of your customers is your media rights partners, right? So there, there's one set of customers, but like also you have fans and customers that don't ever have a chance to come to your games. Then you have the people who you want to bring into your games. So go number one is go back and think about what the value is you want to create for all these different pots of customers and make sure it's like separate, separated out and you've considered what it is. Uh, the next thing I want you to, to think about is how you can make your marketing 
less reactive to what the sales challenges your organization is having, right? I'm yeah. of the belief that marketing is everything. This is like, you know, if, if this is going to be like a forum where I talk a little bit more about philosophy, marketing is everything you do. It's like Brett was talking about earlier, all the engagements that people have when they step into your building from the ticket takers to the food, you know, the people they're buying the beer or their hot dog from all of these things are marketing decisions. They're not just you know, different points in the silo. Think about this from a marketing point of view. And if I have a certain value I'm trying to convey, every st- every interaction, every step, everything I do in the process should reflect it because my marketing is everything. And my marketing can't be reactive. It must, 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 must be proactive. And then finally, I want you to maybe make an effort. Just one effort. If it's only one person, talk to a fan or try to get out into the stadium and experience a game from the eyes of a fan, right? Like get in your car, drive to the game or take the metro or take the subway or take whatever and go through the entire process like you were a fan leaving, you know, and spending your hard-earned money, spending your time, investing your energy in going to a game and, and make note of what happens because I guarantee if you go if you're able to go through the thing just like your fans do it's going to highlight probably some things that are great and some things that need some improvement and not recognizing that is a missed opportunity and it's probably malpractice at this point so those are my three yeah so my three are shockingly going to be very similar to yours but you know the first thing I want to say is is like this is a this isn't, you know, for me, this isn't necessarily like a, I've nailed this a hundred percent practice when I preach thing, because, you know, I think a lot of my opinion that's formed on this has been screwing it up and fucking it up in the process, right? Like, like I've made every mistake that you can make along the way. And, you know, when you take a step back and you think about, you know, when I was in places where it really worked, like, you know, the year that we grew the Washington Freedom Women's Soccer, 300% revenue, the year growth, like, what did we do well there? The year that we were with the crew, you know, when we led Major League Soccer and attendance growth over those two years, what did we do really well there? Then I won't name them by names, but the other areas where I wasn't as successful, what were the things that we did that probably cut away from, you know, what our, our larger vision was in those situations that kept us from being as successful as possible? And, and you know, I think that's the, that's the entry to these three is, um, so mine may be a little bit of a different order, but I think they're really similar is, you know, Wherever you are right now, take a step back and start listening to your fans. Start having that dialogue with your fans. Start interacting with your fans. Start seeing this from your fans' point of view. Um, real quick, I remember when I was with the um, with the NBA League office, um, they wanted to go around because um, improving renewal rates was a big thing that most teams were talking about. And so we went to teams and organizations. I can't remember the company that we were working with um, to be able to do it, but they had us go in and they had us talk to everyone in the organization except the sales team to get ideas about what they could do from a renewal standpoint. And the best idea we ever heard, which is crazy, was the cheerleader coach in Portland, Oregon. And I remember her idea for what they could do for the trailblazers to increase renewal rates was so mind blowingly amazing that I was like, man, like, cause, cause she looks at it as a fan, right? Like she's a fan of the team. That's why she's giving her time to this. And so she wants to see it improve. And so that was one of those things that really crystallized to me that listening to the fans, having that dialogue with the fans, they're going to diagnose far better than what you think those challenges really are. 
then make sure that you listen to what your fans are saying and create a brand that extends all the way from your marketing platforms to your experience in the games to what your sales reps are doing, that you create a brand that leads as opposed to marketing follow sales. Um, and then do whatever you need to do to make sure, listen, I don't think inside sales programs are going away. I know you see it out there and you know there's a lot of complaints about sales and, and all that. And it's not going away. Inside sales programs are not leaving sports like we need to fight a different battle. And so fighting that battle is we need to make sure that when our frontline salespeople are talking to our fans, they're talking to them as fans. Like they're talking to them as people that share the experience of going to games with the people that they're going with, that the personalities that they have mesh with who our fans are, that the demographics of our sales department replicate the demographics of the people that are walking into our building um, and that they're trained to talk about the fan experience and what our brand is before we talk to them about closing protocol or agenda statements or any of those things that they lead us as a fan first and they follow um, with shaping the edges around, around being a good salesperson. And so we listen to our fans and we talk to our fans and engage with our fans. They'll help lead this idea of what our brand needs to be to draw people in to what we're doing and then make sure that the ways that we communicate to them replicate that message that we're trying to do, especially those frontline people who for a lot of sports teams are going to have more messages a week than what the general marketing is going to do. Then, man, you know, I think that, that cohesiveness from the top down, that openness to listen, um, there's no way you can't draw people into what you're doing. Yeah, no, and, and I think that's a good place to leave it, right? Because yeah. I don't think that the empty seats problem happened in one day, and it won't nope. get it won't be resolved in one day. I think it's, um, you know, again, most things. If you can step back and you take a big picture look at these uh, challenges it helps you make more conscious decisions, right? If yeah. you just are uh, reacting to what the point of pain is today, you're always going to be behind the curve, right? It's, yeah. and that's the, um, you know, not to beat up on baseball because I mean, I love baseball. I have a baseball t-shirt yeah. on as we were talking yesterday. I had a major league baseball t-shirt on. I mean, I love baseball, which is one of the reasons that yeah. I hate to see it in the state it's in. But um, one of the challenges they're reacting to the pain today, and that's what's leading to some of these ideas that they're offering out. Which, again, they're testing them in minor league baseball, so there's no harm, no foul in a lot of ways. But the thing is, is like the bigger thing is a strategic thing, which is like people just don't associate value with what they're offering. And I yeah. think if you know, and that's a strategic thing, right? Um, and then you know, I use major league baseball, but we can apply it to everybody. If you're not consciously always focusing on what the value is you're trying to create for your customers and thinking about the different sets of customers, um, understanding who's buying each part of the process and understanding how to reach them correctly, you're going to struggle. That's, you know, and, and I think that's really the heart of this empty seats problem that we've been talking about today is that you have to go through that three step strategic process kind of all the time, right? Because it's not like it's a one size fits all set it and forget it thing. You know, you're kind of always going to need to be constantly asking yourself those questions. You know, what's valuable now, you know, are the assumptions I made today, you know, last year, the same ones that are going to hold true this year or what has changed. Um, yeah. so, but Brett, how do people? How can people find you? Even though I'll, I'll ta even though you'll be back, 
And then even though yeah. um, you'll get tagged in all the social media stuff, still point people away towards you. Appreciate it. So it's empoweredsalesperson.com. Um, jump on it. It's all free content. And the entirety of that website um, is meant to help sales managers, sales directors, sales reps, and professional sports um, tackle the problems that they're having. So every article I do on the website, the podcast I do on the site, um, all that stuff uh, comes from what people tell me they're looking for. So go to the site, tell me what your biggest sales challenges are. You're going to see an article or a podcast that's, that's, that's done to directly uh, replicate it. And I'm super proud of it. The, the viewership, uh, the readership is literally going up daily, um, which to me is, is, is the most exciting thing. So we started at a decent place and, and, and where we're going to be at at the end of August is going to be way ahead of where we were in, in July and June. So check it out. It's all free. You don't have to spend anything when you go there. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's my way of, of helping give back to that, that sales community. Well, you follow the same philosophy I do. It's like I give the the general I give away, the specific you pay for. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, uh, yeah, shoot, the shoe will drop at some point. There's no doubt about that. That's exactly right. I can only take you so far before you do have to pay. Um, but Brett, this I hopefully this is going to be something we can do again and do um, you know touch on a bunch of different. Uh, uh, challenges and opportunities in sports and entertainment um, and hopefully people will enjoy our conversation so uh, thank you again for taking the time to do this and we will talk again soon thank you sir absolutely once again thank you for listening to the business of fun podcast i want to thank brett zelaski for taking the time and helping me come up with an idea for a potentially ongoing series of conversations around some of the big issues uh, in sports and entertainment um, if you like it, let us know by emailing me at dave at davewakeman.com. As always, I would love it if you visit my website, which is www.davewakeman.com, where you can see my blog. You can find out some of the things I'm working on. You can learn who I've worked with. You can do all kinds of stuff there. You could also follow me on Twitter. That's at davidwakeman.com. There's somebody who has the at Dave Wakeman. I got to get it. They haven't tweeted since 2014, so if you know someone at Twitter who can help me do it, hook me up. Also, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, and as always, if you like the podcast, if you enjoy it, I'd love it if you'd subscribe. And if you're willing to subscribe, or even if you're not, maybe if you could leave me a review, it'd be really helpful. Until next time, thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.